although the weather is beautiful outside, and uh, thank you for bringing us this nice weather. It's my great pleasure to introduce to you Bernard Haichal, who's professor of Near Eastern Language Studies at Princeton University. Uh, he also directs the Institute for the Transregional Study of the Contemporary Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia. And these are projects on oil and energy, and maybe soon also water, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, Heiken's primary, uh, primary research interests center on Islamic political movements and legal thought, as well as the politics and history of Saudi Arabia and Yemen. He's published extensively on the Salafi movement in both its pre-modern and modern manifestations, explored in his book, Revival and Reform in Islam, Cambridge University Press, 2003. Um, and he's presently uh, completing a second book on the global Salafi movement. And once completed, he hopes, and we all hope, that he would be able to turn his attention to a monograph on the modern history of Saudi Arabia. Haikal is considered one of America's leading experts on the Arabian Peninsula. And his commentaries appear frequently in print and broadcast media, including CNN, ABC, etc. In 2005, the Carnegie Corporation of New York selected him as a Carnegie Scholar. He was also selected as a Guggenheim Scholar. Uh, prior to joining the Princeton faculty, he was Associate Professor of Islamic and Middle Eastern History at New York University. Heike received his PhD in Islamic Studies from the University of Oxford, and he is going to give a lecture today titled the Salafis, the Wahhabis, and the nature and doctrines of global Islamic movements. This event is sponsored by Mashran Center, Honors and Scholars, the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures, the Department of Political Science, and the Middle East Studies Center at the Ohio State University. Thank you so much. And please join me in welcoming Bernard Hedge. Thank you. I hope you can all hear me. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Tamer. It's really uh, an honor to be here and to have this uh, uh, invitation. I would also like to thank the Mershon Center uh, and its staff. Uh, Beth Russell was extremely helpful and also uh, Professor Bill Little. Um, so I wanted to, um, by way of preface, I want to uh, talk to you today, I want to talk to you about Salafism, but Salafism is a theological movement that is quite complicated and abstruse in some of its, in some of its details. So I thought I would talk a bit about that, but also since the Mershon Center is interested and focused on international security studies, I thought I would give you some background on Saudi Arabia and Al-Qaeda and how Al-Qaeda and Saudi Arabia um, relate to one another, bring in a bit of discussion on oil and uh, talk about bin Laden and so on, and then conclude with how Al-Qaeda is being fought 
uh, in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia in particular, and how I think the United States should think about this movement and also um, uh, complete the job of, uh, of fighting it. So without uh, uh, further ado, I'll, I'll just talk to you a bit about the Salafis just to give you some background. So Salafism um, or Salafis are this religious uh, movement, a revivalist religious movement, if you like, and they derive their name from uh, the term Salaf, which uh, refers to the pious ancestors, the earliest Muslims, often thought to represent the first three generations of Muslims. Generations in the broad sense of generations, some 200 years or so of the earliest history of Islam. This is when Islam was at its uh, glory. And uh, modern Muslims who are Salafis look to that period and want to go back to it um, and want to emulate these first three generations in, in the most punctilious details. Uh, so there's an emphasis on theological purity and belief in practice. Um, and they, their main focus and target of attack has always been other Muslims. They're not really interested in non-Muslims uh, because for obvious reasons. I mean, non-Muslims are uh, infidels and, uh, and uh, are, in, are by definition in error. Uh, but it's the, it's the errant Muslims that need to be reformed. And they have particular targets of attack, namely the Sufis and the Shias. Um, the practice of visiting cemeteries and saints' tombs. Um, and they are a dominant movement in Saudi Arabia. It is the official Salafism, which I take use interchangeably with Wahhabism, by the way, um, because they are theologically um, indistinguishable one from the other, although there are some practical and uh, historical differences between them that I can, I can get to in the question-answer period, if you wish. Uh, but Salafism and Wahhabism... Uh, uh, are the kind of foundational doctrine legitimizing the rule of the Saudi royal family in the kingdom. And uh, the thing to remember is that Salafis and Salafism has always been a marginal phenomenon in the Muslim world. I mean, the middle of, uh, the center of Arabia, Najd, which is where the Saudi royal family comes from, I often tell my students, is the armpit of the Muslim world. Historically, it's the most insignificant part of the Muslim world. So insignificant, in fact, that no one was actually interested in occupying it and conquering it, because there's just nothing there. And the fact that today, Najd, the central province, and its doctrines and its religious practices represent this dominant force in the world begs a number of questions. And often, very often, people associate the fact that Saudi Arabia has so much money because of its oil reserves, 25% of the oil, oil reserves of the world, of the proven oil reserves of the world, they basically think Salafism is dominant because of the oil. This oil money is being used to spread this ideology or this form of Islam. There's some truth to that, some truth, but it's, it doesn't really tell the full story because Salafism predates oil and its spread also predates oil. Um, and its appeal to many Muslims around the world is not necessarily linked to oil. In fact, many Salafis around the world are against the Saudi royal family and don't receive money from the Saudi royal family. So that raises a set of issues as to why it's so uh, appealing to so many, to so many Muslims um, today. And, and, and Al-Qaeda is one fringe group within a spectrum of, uh, of, Salafi, uh, uh, of people within the Salafi movement. It's a really tiny fringe. And one must always remember that the hardcore members of Al-Qaeda are only a few tens of thousands of Muslims out of a population of 
1.3 to 1.5 billion Muslims worldwide. So we're really talking about a small cult, not something that is representative of the broader um, faith and practice and belief of the Muslim community. So, although they share this this theology, which focuses on a very stripped, um, a stripped understanding of God, um, an emphasis that God is. Uh, is, is an abstract deity that cannot be approached through either intercessionary practices by going to saints or tombs uh, or imams. Uh, the, the, that, that theology is what unites them. But where, 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 where the Salafis fragment is uh, over law, how they interpret Islamic law, and they're quite literal, by the way, and literalists or strict instructionists in their interpretation and approach to law, and where they really fragment completely is their, in their approach to politics and how they see themselves in the political world. So you broadly have three types of Salafis uh, in, in terms of politics. You have these, the, the bulk of them are obedient or uh, often termed quietists, um, uh, um, uh, Muslims who argue that as long as you have a, a Muslim ruler, even if that ruler is... Um, um, a sinner or someone who uh, is a bad Muslim and is widely known to be a bad Muslim, you still owe that person obedience and you're not permitted to rebel. So you're not permitted to engage politically in the world as long as you have a Muslim ruler uh, under whom you, you live. And you must remember that the Wahhabis were never a problem to the United States or to anyone for that matter um, until the 1990s. And why is that? It's because they had no. They were basically quietists who obeyed the Saudi monarchs, and they uh, argued that uh, they were very anti-communist. And the United States used them very effectively in the war against communism during the Cold War in very on in various places around the world. And the Saudis were full partners with the United States during the Cold War um, in the war against uh, communism. I'll just give you a few examples. The Saudis, after the mid-70s, when the United States could no longer fund anti-communist activities in various countries around the world, the Saudis, along with a number of other countries, picked up the slack by funding anti-communist activities in such countries as Italy, for instance. Saudi money went to Italy, went to Angola, went to Central America, and all kinds of conflict zones against communism. The Saudis were very, very effective. Um, and most, and, and the most, uh, the climactic, if you like, moment of Saudi-U.S. cooperation against the communists and the Soviets came in the war against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980, in the uh, from 1979 onward till 1988-89, where the Saudis matched the U.S. dollar for dollar uh, in that in that war. So you you have the obedient types, and they still are the dominant group numerically. Then you have the activists who emerge really in the late 80s and into the 90s. And the activists are those who have been infected or influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood is a movement, I will talk about it a bit later in the lecture. They're a movement that emerged out of Egypt and they are a movement that is politically engaged and seeks to and seeks power and has um, a, a way of being in the world and a way of organizing in activist fashion uh, that is quite distinct from Salafism. The Muslim brothers talk about um, power, politics, a global, uh, the, the, the way the globe is structured, 
uh, in terms of uh, the United States and, and, uh, and other forces, um, most of whom are arrayed against uh, Muslims. This kind of talk of politics on a global but also more regional and domestic level is something that comes out of Muslim Brotherhood speak. It's not something that is indigenous to, to the Salafis. The Salafis are more about, are you praying correctly? Are you uh, performing your ablutions uh, properly? Are you speaking and using the etiquette of the Prophet? That's the sort of obsession. It's an obsession with ritual, uh, with ritual practice because that, that, that ritual practice is reflective of how uh, much you wish to emulate the earliest generation of Muslims. And then finally, on the fringe of the Salafi movement, you have the jihadis, who are influenced by both the Muslim Brotherhood and by Salafism, and basically who argue that uh, the way to reach power, unlike a number of Muslim brother, Brotherhood ideologues, the way to reach power is through violence. And even nihilist forms of violence, such as suicide bombing, uh, and so on. So keep this, uh, keep this taxonomy or, 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 um, of Salafis in mind. Uh, the the quietest obedient types, the activists and the jihadis. As we move forward, so what? Why is Salafism appealing? I told you earlier that some most people argue it's Saudi money. I, I don't think that's in fact the full story. It's very much only part of the story. The appeal of Salafism is that it presents itself as a very muscular form of Islam. Um, it's authentic. It's authoritative because it's constantly quoting texts of revelation. So it, the way it, it, a Salafi would engage with another Muslim is to bombard that other Muslim with quotes of, uh, from the Quran or from the sayings of the Prophet. So it's very difficult to argue against it because you, you, you claim the legitimacy, you garb yourself with the cloak of the Prophet's authority. Um, it's also more, and I use democratic in quotes, because as a group or as a community, Anyone can read texts. If you're literate, you can read texts. And that fragments the kind of author- the traditional authority structures in pre-modern Islam and that exist among other Muslim communities. Because Salafis basically say, look, just go to the text and find out what Islam says. Don't listen to this turbaned um, old man or uh, some guy who comes out of some university where they teach bad Islam. Just read the text for yourself. So there's a, a Puritan... Um, Protestant, if you like, um, the, uh, aspect to Salafism that makes it quite appealing. It's also a global movement, and it certainly has wealthy donors and is well-funded. And it's not that rigorous as a, as, an, as a way of being a Muslim in the world, by which I mean it's fairly easy to adopt to it or to take on Salafi ways, because it's about really practice, and which is fairly well-defined. By the way, f- feel free to interrupt me at any point if you if I've lost you or if you have a question. So now let me turn to Al Qaeda. Now you should all know, by the way, that Al Qaeda is um, present around us all the time um, because it's on the net. You can go onto their websites and you can download speeches, videos, uh, uh, audio tapes, um, written texts, and so on very easily, very quickly from the internet. And Al-Qaeda is this movement that emerges in the late 80s and into the 90s at a point when um, you have this coming together of a a radical form of the Muslim Brotherhood with a more radicalized uh, form of Salafism. So it's a hybrid ideology that combines 
what I call the political consciousness and activism of the Muslim Brotherhood with the theological Puritanism of the Salafis. And the, the way, uh, and, and, and Al-Qaeda has also adapted and adopted other types of political speech that would be recognizable to any of you here because they're not, they have nothing to do with Islam in that they have taken on many of the anti-colonial um, um, uh, ideologies, the, the claims of the anti-colonial movements and ideologies that fought European uh, imperialism and colonialism as well as some Marxist content and some Marxist arguments. So it's this hodgepodge of ideas that garbs itself in a Salafi Puritanism. And the core of the argument is that Muslims are under attack all over the world. There's this barbaric machine that is led by the United States that uh, is out to not only kill Muslims but to destroy Islam itself. So there's this... I like to think of Al-Qaeda as, as uh, Al-Qaeda's discourse is divided into two, two aspects or two facets of Al-Qaeda's. So there's, the first is what's wrong with the world. And what's wrong with the world is that Muslims are under attack and the enemy is a fairly well-defined uh, thing. The second aspect of Al-Qaeda's ideology is well, what to do about what's wrong in the, with the world. And the tactical or strategic aspect of Al-Qaeda's message is basically to argue for what I call the privatization of violence. That it becomes an individual duty for every Muslim to participate in this war for the defense of Islam. And literally by taking weapons and fighting and killing Americans and Jews and whoever Al-Qaeda decides is the enemy of Muslims. It could be Shiites in Iraq, for instance. And that all means of warfare are permissible even the killing of fellow Muslims. And they make theological arguments for why it's permissible to kill other Muslims. And this, is, this, uh, this, uh, this aspect of Al-Qaeda's tactics, the killing of other Muslims, has proven to be it's Achille, the movement's Achilles' heel. And then there's this argument that warfare is deterritorialized. It's not specific to a particular region, but the whole globe is a, is a theater for, for war. Um, uh, but they do that also appeal to more traditional forms of Islamic uh, ideology with respect to war, and uh, uh, this is the defensive jihad theory of Al-Qaeda. So just to be very succinct here, the defensive jihad theory, which is shared not just by Al-Qaeda but by many other Muslims, is that if you have, if you have a territory here, let's call the Muslim territory Iraq or <laughs> Afghanistan, and it's invaded by an outside non-Muslim power, then it's an individual duty on the Muslims who live in this territory, this yellow territory, to defend themselves against this outside invader. If they are not sufficiently powerful or numerous or able to defend themselves, then the duty to join the war against the outside invader extends outward from the original territory to include other Muslim lands, Saudi Arabia or Pakistan. So others from other countries must come into this original country that's been invaded to join the fight. And then ultimately, if even those Muslims in neighboring territories are not sufficiently, um, are not sufficiently powerful, capable, or numerous to defend the invaded territory, then the entire Muslim world, even the entire world, including Muslims living in the West, must come and join this fight to liberate territory. Okay? 
this is uh, the, this is the the defensive theory. There's an offensive theory of jihad, but that only obtains if you have a fully constituted Muslim state with a ruler who basically engages in offensive warfare, and that has its own rules of uh, of engagement that are similar to uh, just war theory. They have notions of discrimination and proportionality and so on that obtain in an offensive war, but not in this defensive um, uh, war. So let me show you some pictures of some of the classic enemies of, uh, of Al-Qaeda and of Salafis. So one group is the Sufis. Here you're looking at a group of Sufis in southern Yemen in an area called Hadramaut. And this uh, uh, this dome here that you see, the white dome, that's and, and these other domes, these are saints, tombs. And so you have these Sufis who engage in annual festivals around the tombs of these saints, and they are attacked by the Salafis. Um, and I'm going to show you an example of what Salafis do to uh, to the tombs of uh, of the saints. They go and they destroy them. And here you have examples from Yemen. On the left, this is a, a, a graveyard uh, of, a, of a very famous Sufi saint, the patron saint of Aden, a city in southern Arabia. Um, his name is Al-Aidarus. They destroyed his tomb and all the tombs that... Uh, were around the saints and these t- tombs that you see or graves that you see desecrated and destroyed in, in the picture to the right are tombs on the Saudi Yemeni border in the very north of the country and they are the tombs of Zaidi imams uh, a particular sect of Islam uh, dominant in the north again the destruction is by is by Salafis so br- very briefly Islamism uh, Al-Qaeda is an Islamist movement as opposed to Islamicist, which is what I am, someone who studies Islam. So an Islamist and Islamism comes uh, is an ideology that uh, advocates the subordination of, of politics, Islamic principles, uh, as embodied in the Sharia, in Islamic law. There are, of course, many different kinds of Islamists. Um, but I believe that most of them, once they make the claim that the Sharia must be imposed, then they live in tension with liberal democratic values. Because you have to deal with what the Sharia has to say about non-Muslims, about women, about Israel, about ter- nation states. And those are issues that you can fudge, you can, you can, you can interpret away, but you have to contend and deal with them in some, in some way. And Al-Qaeda represents the very radical fringe of Islamism that basically rejects um, all liberal democratic values. Uh, excoriates them, in fact, and sees them as part of a larger Western uh, plan or plot to destroy Islam. Um, And this then raises the question, which I think we will discuss in class uh, uh, after this, which is what happens if Islamists do capture a state? Um, And should we be afraid of Islamists capturing a state? I don't mean Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda would be very, very dramatic. Uh, thing were they to capture a state as they had done in Afghanistan in the 1990s, but uh, were the Muslim Brotherhood to capture a state, what would that mean? And I think that uh, uh, there are various views about this. The United States' policy so far has been that we will not permit Islamists to come to power. And we will put up with despots and potentates who are authoritarians, authoritarian, and not allow the democratic process to work its way uh, to bring and, and allow Islamists to come to power. Egypt is the kind of classic example of this uh, today. The Muslim Brotherhood, very briefly, 
so that you know something about uh, what I was mentioning earlier. It's an Egyptian uh, in origin, a movement Egyptian in origin, now transnational. The founder is this man to the, on the top, Hassan al-Banna. And uh, you can see here that they have an anti-imperialist. Uh, uh, it was originally an anti-imperialist movement with a military wing. It was very influenced, like many other movements in the Middle East, by... Uh, by, by both Marxism and by fascist movements. Um, its goal is to Islamize society, to bring everything under the aegis of Islamic law. The specifics of what that means is, are always left fairly unclear and nebulous. I think deliberately so. Uh, because once you get into the specifics of uh, impl- the, implementation, the implementation of Islamic law, many people might balk and say, no, 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 we're not really into that sort of thing. Um, and they are organized, uh, uh, they engage in organized activism. So, for instance, they, um, uh, in Saudi Arabia, they have after-school activities, summer camps, um, uh, Boy Scout clubs, uh, that sort of thing that is extremely important for uh, educating a generation and many generations of, of young Muslims into the ideology and into the thought processes of the Muslim Brotherhood. And there is a tension within the movement between the violent and the non-violent wings. Uh, and Sayyid Qutb, the man down here below, is the um, ideologue of the more violent wing of the movement. I think of them, frankly, as unprincipled political opportunists. I think of them as people who use Islam in order to come to power. But what the content of that Islam is, is always kept uh, very, um, very uh, unclear and ambiguous and this is one of the problems that Salafis have with the Muslim Brotherhood, by the way, which is that they think of them as people who are only into power for power's sake and who are not interested in the specifics of Islamic doctrine and theology. A classic d- dispute between the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, the Salafis is that the Muslim Brothers often talk to Shiites, are fairly ecumenical, they're tolerant of other kinds of Muslims who are, in terms of theology, um, fairly suspect from a Salafi point of view. So let me talk a bit about Osama bin Laden, um, at least the way I see him. So bin Laden is, um, it's very important to understand this, that in Saudi Arabia, the only people who are entitled to have a say in the political functioning and organization of the state are members of the Saudi royal family. Saudi royal family is some 5,000 princes and princesses, and within the princes, you have about 10 to 20 top princes who basically run the show. And anyone else is marginal or irrelevant to the functioning of the system at the decision-making level. So bin Laden is this person who is not Saudi by origin, has made a lot of money in Saudi Arabia as a family because they owe everything to the Saudi royal family who gave them contracts to build different infrastructure and construction projects in the kingdom. He then was deliberately produced by the Saudi intelligence services as a, as a, um, as a hero of the Afghan Jihad. He, um, the, the, the man who created him is a prince called Prince Turkil Faisal, who was the head of Saudi intelligence from 1977 till 2001. And uh, bin Laden develops this hero-like, occult-like um, status in the Afghan Jihad because he was funneling money to the Afghans and to the Arabs who were going to Afghanistan returns to Saudi Arabia after the end of the Afghan war and wants to convert that um, charisma, prestige, 
hero cult-like um, status into real power in the kingdom. And so what he starts to do is he starts to petition the Saudi royals to get engaged actively uh, in different areas of, uh, uh, of conflict in Arabia. So the first engagement that he petitioned the Saudis for was to use his troops, some several thousand warriors or fighters who had been, who had been to Afghanistan, to use them against the Marxists who were in Yemen, in southern Yemen, uh, in a country called the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, and to use them against these socialists and Marxists. And, this, uh, and the Saudis rebuffed him and said, no, go back to building buildings or being an accountant or whatever it is you do, and leave politics to the people who do politics. And then his second attempt to uh, really intervene in, in the kingdom's policies came when Iraq invaded Kuwait in August of, two, of 1990. Again, he made the same offer to use his troops and not and for the United, for the kingdom not to invite the United States uh, to defend it, and again he was rebuffed and told to know his place, uh, and this led to frustration, ultimately to more radicalization. With the arrival of American troops, he felt that the uh, the final veil that was covering or that was giving legitimacy to the Saudi royals was now lifted, and he um, became very angry and started. Um, uh, lecturing in mosques and giving sermons that were very anti-Saudi. And he was brought, hauled into police stations some 30 times and was made to sign confessions saying, I promise never again to talk about politics. He would sign the paper and then re be released and go back to the mosque and start preaching again. Um, so the Saudis stripped him of his nationality, asked the family, his own family to disown him, and he left the kingdom uh, and went to Sudan, where he was received for a brief period and then was kicked out and ultimately ended up in Afghanistan under the aegis of the Taliban. But his principal influence is that of the Muslim Brotherhood, and he adopts Salafism because he knows that that's the currency. That is the political currency uh, in Saudi Arabia. You cannot have a movement that is effective in Saudi Arabia that does not appeal to Salafism at, uh, at, at some level because that, that is the nature of and the... The, the very grammar of religion in that country. Okay, so he becomes obsessed. Then, uh, let me dip briefly into bin Laden's view of the world. So he dips, uh, he talks about how, um, this is in the 1990s when he's now fully radicalized, he talks about how the Saudis are in cahoots with the United States and with this, on keeping the price of oil deliberately low. And if you remember, in 1998, the price of a barrel had reached $9 a barrel, uh, which is a historic low. And so he makes this big claim about how the kingdom is deliberately keeping the price low and then buying these useless military equip this useless military equipment from the United States, essentially saying that this is a puppet regime, the Saudi regime is a puppet regime uh, that is being controlled by the West. Uh, and propped up by the West, and by definition, therefore, not legitimate. So this is a quote from one of his sermons to his fighters in Afghanistan from the late 90s. And now let me talk to you a bit about oil and then go back to bin Laden for a second. I love this map, and I often use it with my students because it's basically a map of the world where the countries are in proportion to the proven reserves that they have in the ground. So you can see that a country like Kuwait is actually bigger than all of North America. And this is basically a map that concentrates the mind on why the Middle East and specifically countries of the Persian Gulf are significant because something like 60 to 65% of the world's proven oil reserves 
are in uh, this region. Can you all hear me, by the way? Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, and not an insignificant fact. Okay. Just to give you a sense of the scale of the oil that is that exists in this region, Saudi Arabia has one oil field called Ghawar, which is the size of Delaware. Ghawar was uh, found uh, was discovered in the 40s, and it's still producing today close to five million barrels of oil a day. One field. Okay. Um, this, I mean, there's nothing like it in, uh, in anywhere else in the world. And that's just an accident of, of geology. Uh, of course, the Saudis say that it, that's not entirely correct. It's God, right? If so, it's, it's Wahhabism and Salafism that is the true, that's the true, that's the true version of Islam. And God saw it, that we should get it. Um, this is a fascinating little document. I don't know if any of you have seen it before. But it comes from Bin Laden's own personal diary. It was found in, by the U.S. in Afghanistan. And it... Uh, let me briefly go through it with you. So this is uh, the diary from uh, the year 2000. And what Bin Laden says is... He's, he's, he's writing here and he says... Uh, the, the share, the share of, for every Muslim from oil. And he makes this calculation that the Muslim world produces either 25 million barrels of oil a day or 30 million barrels of oil a day. He goes with the higher figure. Muslim countries produce 30 million barrels of oil a day. He calculates that the price of oil should be at $150 per barrel uh, in the year 2000, which gives you $4,500,000,000 of revenue a day. He then divides the $4,500,000,000 in revenue by the 1.2 billion Muslims in the world and comes up with the figure of $3.75 per Muslim per day uh, in revenue which he then multiplies by eight, which is the average size of a Muslim family, and comes to the figure of $30, million, $30 per family per day in the Muslim world. So this is a fantasy about how oil wealth ought to be divided in communist Marxist fashion across the Muslim world. But it tells you something about both the naivete of the man, but also the utopian and, uh, nature of this movement and what they think uh, and how they think oil should be priced and what should be done with the wealth. I think it's a fascinating little insight into the man and into the nature of the movement and the fantasy world of this movement. Uh, of course, the fact that the price of oil hit 147 at one point in 2008, was it? Uh, proves that he's wrong, that in fact the United States is not somehow uh, machinating to keep the price deliberately low. Uh, so the power and message of Al-Qaeda is it's a reaction to the authoritarianism of the local regime and its corruption. The, who can disagree with that? I mean, any decent, middle-class, hard-working human being anywhere in the world would want accountable, transparent governance. And so there's that aspect to the message, which is, of course, going to be bro broadly appealing to everyone. There's a reaction to U.S. hegemony and its presence in, in the United States, and specifically to this idea that I think is encapsulated by Secretary Baker, uh, which is to say, you know, there's a delicate ba balance of power in the Middle East, and the U.S. is the custodian of this balancing act. This is something that is deeply offensive to bin Laden, and I have hasten to add to many Arabs and Muslims, but again, it's not specific to Islamism to feel this, to feel this offense. Um, then there's this idea of U.S. force projection and the theft of Muslim oil. It's interesting to note that if you calculate how much it has cost the United States to project force into the Persian Gulf since the 1980s, 1983 is when we uh, sent out uh, many of our 
uh, aircraft carriers and the battle groups into the Persian Gulf, it has it, it is now several trillion dollars in terms of wasted money, if you think of it as wasted, to project this kind of force uh, so far away from home. And uh, then he has the religious justification for why the U.S. shouldn't be there. And the message is ultimately about change and a blueprint for how to bring this about, which is, as I said, the privatization of violence. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll skip this, but essentially 9-11, as I see it, is an attempt by al-Qaeda to say, look, uh, we were not able to topple these domestic regimes, these regimes in the Arab world. Uh, specifically here, they're thinking about Algeria, Egypt, Syria, Saudi Arabia. In all cases, these regimes proved to be too powerful, uh, too entrenched to be toppled um, because they are brutal and they are survival machines and they will do whatever it takes to survive, including you know, the torture and rape and killing and imprisonment of any number of people. Uh, and so Al-Qaeda turned its attention to the West, saying, well, if we can't, as it were, kill the puppet, well, maybe if we irritate the puppet master, then something will change in the world and we'll be able to radicalize Muslims. And this is what happened, which is uh, to attack the United States, which they describe as a, as a serpent. If you cut the, serpent, the serpent's head off, it'll writhe, it'll radicalize Muslims. Um, but then a number of things devolved from that attack, namely the fall of the Taliban, and then the, the decision by al-Qaeda to start attacking in the Muslim world and using suicide attacks, specifically in Saudi Arabia in 2003. And, um, and, uh, and the Saudis, since 2003, since these attacks, have proven even more resilient, more tough in dealing with al-Qaeda so that they have actually managed now to destroy al-Qaeda in Arabia. Uh, but that raises a whole set of other issues, which is that once these countries destroy this phenomenon within their territory, often the survivors go to other places and they, as it were, export their problem to other countries, which then come, comes back to either haunt them or haunt us through the known phenomenon now, uh, which is sometimes referred to as blowback. Um, so let me talk to you about some of Al-Qaeda's ideologues. This man here, and I like to use the example of this man because his brother, this man is probably Al-Qaeda's most uh, sophisticated and articulate ideologue. His name is Nasser al-Fahid. He uh, is now in prison. He's a professor of theology. And he has uh, issued, he's written many, many books and, and issued a fatwa, uh, most famous in May of 2003, which argued for using weapons of mass destruction and nuclear attack, nuclear weapons against the United States in particular. Now, this man's brother, his own full brother, is a Yale Law School graduate. He's the top corporate lawyer today in Saudi Arabia. If you should ever want to do business there, I can give you his name. Um, he's a very, very uh, uh, articulate and close uh, individual to the Saudi royal family. And his own brother is al-Qaeda's... Um, I, uh, principal ideologue in the country and someone who has made this ki these kinds of arguments, which is something that should make you wonder about the Saudi regime and how it deals with this problem. How is it that one brother is in prison and the other brother is a successful lawyer and doing quite well for himself? And I will get to that in, in a minute. Uh, the other, uh, the other um, uh, ideologue is this guy, again, a fairly young guy, um, and he is... Uh, 
known as the Minister of Information of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And he has developed a doctrine of of what he calls economic jihad, which is basically to argue that killing, using suicide attacks against Muslims, killing Muslims is a bad thing for us, it gives us a bad reputation. What we should do is attack the economic infrastructure of oil, and what he terms economic jihad, in order to to destabilize um, the world economy and to bring down the United States by cutting off the oil supplies. And this is the book that he's published on the internet, um, which is a long and extensive treatise about the legitimacy of attacking oil installations. And Al-Qaeda has followed through and tried to do this uh, on a couple of occasions, three occasions so far, all of which have failed. But this is the sort of thing that I I suspect we will be seeing more and more of uh, from Al-Qaeda. Now, this is the man, a prince, who basically has... uh, Deputy Minister of the Interior in Saudi Arabia, and the person who has been the most successful at uh, destroying Al-Qaeda in the kingdom, the way he has done this is, you know, through traditional security and police and military efforts, but he's also co-opted Al-Qaeda members um, and used propaganda and counter-propaganda. And the way that they co-opt Al-Qaeda members is to bring in the families. They bring the families on board. They try to put pressure on the individuals through their families to basically desist and back off from their from their ide- ideology. They also find them jobs, they get them a home, they get them a car, and they find them a wife. Um, so it's a very kind of personal, family-oriented way of de-radicalizing Al-Qaeda members. And it tells you that they see this problem as a domestic problem, not as an, uh, a problem with some outside foreign force. So their view of Al-Qaeda is different from the United States' view. And the United States' view is that this is some foreign threat for the Saudis, this is a domestic threat, and therefore they use a whole array of tools, soft and hard, uh, to to bring these people to heel. And they've been very successful at it. The problem, though, is that when these Arab regimes use their tactics against these movements, they often also use torture and use collective punishment. And that um, and, and while that is very effective, and I think one reason why we haven't seen more attacks in the, in the United States, because these regimes have turned against this movement as well, it raises all kinds of ethical, legal, and moral problems uh, for us if we ultimately have to rely on these security services for our own security. And uh, the crushing of Al-Qaeda in, Arabia, in Saudi Arabia has led to the movement regrouping in Yemen, uh, there have been a number of Guantanamo detainees amongst them. Uh, and now the focus of Al-Qaeda in Arabia is to target Somalia and to target Saudi Arabia as well from a Yemeni base. And you have a new generation of radicalized individuals who are nihilists and who make bin Laden seem like a very principled and highly educated man. Uh, so it's quite a worrying phenomenon. And they produce this sort of stuff from their um, uh, on their websites engaging in theological debates. This is a theological issue, the Mujia, and then also talking about Somalia. Um, now, some concluding remarks. Um, so I think of Al-Qaeda as a problem that can only be managed and not solved. I mean, there isn't a silver bullet to dealing with it, in particular because it is a phenomenon, that a fringe phenomenon of a religious movement uh, that has political ambitions. And... Um, if we think of it as a as a problem to be managed and not to be solved, then we think of it and we can think of it in, in terms that are more sophisticated and hopefully more effective, uh, just like 
some of the Saudi uh, efforts um, to prevent radicalization from taking place. Uh, it's, impor- it's important, however, to address some of the core grievances of the movement, which are not itself, which are not the grievances of the movement itself, but grievances of movements that had preceded it, to do with injustice, to do with the nature of the regimes, uh, to do with American support with, for Israel. All of these issues are issues that I think must be addressed if you really are to take away some of the uh, some of the truth that is built into the uh, ideology uh, of Al Qaeda and which has to do with what is wrong with the world. You know that aspect of its ideology. We do have a reprieve, I think because of the price of oil, because the Saudis also have thrown a lot of money at, uh, and because of the price of oil being fairly high, they've thrown a lot of money at, this, at solving this problem and at quieting and co-opting uh, people. And I think if you see the price of oil plummeting, that is going down very seriously, you're very likely to see a revival of al-Qaeda, certainly in Saudi Arabia. Salafism's appeal is widespread, and you have to realize that many Muslims might agree with some of Salafism's ideas without actually identifying as Salafis. And that's an issue that that I think we need to really fully understand and look at the theology and look at the Islamic and pre-modern aspects of this movement. And finally, there's the question of the role of Muslims in the West and to what extent they can be attracted to uh, Al-Qaeda's views and what that means, what what, what that will mean for all of us. So I'm going to end here because I think I've, I've spoken a bit too long and, uh, and, and entertain some of your questions. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, you mentioned that uh, the Salafism is authentic and authoritative. Uh, it, it's claims to be yes, authentic, yes. Uh, in their literature, one of the verses of the Quran that they're often quoting is the last revelation, which is the God is saying that today I have protected your religion yes. and I have bestowed my, I completed my blessings on you and I have selected Islam for you as a religion. So that was 1400 years ago, so everything else outside the Quran is a bit bad. How are they justifying the societal bondage? What verses from the Quran they are taking out? I mean, that's what I'm after to find. Right. Well, and you know that the Quran actually, uh, and, and other sources of uh, proof texts from Islam, forbid suicide. I mean, suicide is forbidden in Islam. So first of all, they don't, agree, they don't, uh, they don't call it suicide. Right? So they, they don't refer to it as suicide. What they, the way they justify the attacks is by saying that it's um, uh, the only means, at, because the Muslims are so weak vis-a-vis the enemy, that it's, one, it's a legitimate means to use because it leads to terrorizing your enemy. And you're allowed to terrorize your enemy according to their version of Islamic law. And so it's the weapon of the weak, basically, uh, argument. The second is to say that <coughs> the intention of the killer, of the person who's dying, the suicide bomber, is not necessarily to die, Right? It's, to, it's, to, it's to achieve victory for Islam and to instill fear in the hearts of, of Muslims. So they make, a, they make an analogy between the suicide bomber and the, and, the, and the soldier who, let's say, will throw himself on a pillbox to protect his, his, uh, his fe- fellow soldiers. Right? So the intention is not suicide. The intention is... So it's an argument about intentionality. Um, 
And the really tricky problem for them is what happens when Muslims die in these suicide attacks because you're not, not allowed to kill Muslims. And so they have a variety of arguments for to address that. They use one argument called the tatarros argument, the shielding argument, which is that these Muslims are being used as shields by the enemy. So, and you're permitted to kill Muslims if you're trying to get at the enemy. You're not trying to get at the Muslims. And one of the really weird arguments they, they use is this argument that is referred to in Arabic uh, as yub'athuna ala niyatihim which is that they are resurrected in accordance with their intentions. So what they say, what the argument basically says, is that if you kill a Muslim who's a good Muslim, then he's going to heaven. In some way you're doing him a favor by killing him. Right? And if he's a bad Muslim, he's going to hell anyway. So it doesn't make a difference if you kill him. It's a kind of, it's a very strange argument. And again, the fact that this argument, this argument doesn't, is difficult for other Muslims to accept. I mean, this is one of the weaknesses of the movement, is that it makes these kinds of arguments that uh, don't really, uh, you know, carry weight with the community. No, I mean, but they're not Luddites, you know. I mean, they're not, I mean, just because in 1400 years ago people used horses and swords, they're not going to go back to using horses and swords. They'll say, you know, times have changed and we will adapt. And suicide attack is the weapon of the weak and it's an adaptation to the modern, uh, to the modern world. What do you do when your enemy can use F-15s and F-16s against you and you're overwhelmed, you're overwhelmed by the power of the opponent? You basically use whatever is at your whatever means that are at your disposal and the suicide um, tactic is is the most effective according to them you know uh, yes sir hey, what's your um, kind of overall evaluation of the Saudi rehabilitation program i think it's in you know it's it's mixed you know some some in some cases they were able through the fa- the pressure on the families and to rehabilitate some of them rehabilitate in the sense of not necessarily changing the the views of the person, but basically co-opting the person, buying the person off. Saudis are very good at that. I mean, they've been very good at it for a long time, uh, at, co- at co-opting people. Um, they have the means, they have huge resources at their disposal. Um, and they, by the way, they co-opt not just, uh, you know, jihadis and, and, and al-Qaeda types. I mean, they co-opt liberals, they co-opt Shiites, they co-opt Americans. Lots of people are on their payroll. That, that's what the Saudis are really good at, is is basically getting people to 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 work for them and to be bought off by them. Um, is it a hundred percent? No, I think the success rate is. You know, I've heard various estimates about it. You know, eighty percent. It's not bad. I mean, the recidivism is not huge, but uh, I, I think it's better than anything else I've seen out there. Yes, sir. How do you respond to the argument that? Yeah. Okay. So, so you know the thing the, when when uh, Al Qaeda uh, functioned in Afghanistan during the Taliban period, they had camps there. They had lar- you know camps that were kind of you could see them, and that 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 I think will never come back. If the Taliban were to take over again. 
uh, Al Qaeda couldn't establish camps because you could blow them out of the sky. Um, so they, they might remain they might remain there and might have an influence on the Taliban, but not it'll take a different form, is what I'm saying. The other thing about about um, Al Qaeda and the Taliban is that the Taliban are a Pashtun movement, right? So they, they're a movement of it's not just a religious movement; it's a movement of a tribe, and it's a very large ethnic. It's a huge tribe, many tens of millions. I mean, some, I think Pashtuns are about 30 million people. But on both, right, on both sides of the of the border. So you have them in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. The most worrying thing for me is that Al Qaeda has been able to uh, influence this group and turn this group, which is a very large group, turn its Pashtun identity and meld it into an Al Qaeda um, interpretation of Islam. That I think is extremely worrying. Um, and and I, I don't think there is an easy answer or solution to it. Now, if the Taliban were to come back to power, um, and I suspect that if the U.S. were to withdraw today, that would happen because the, the Pakistanis would support that. I mean, they would want them to come back to power. You would have to hold them accountable um, either through the Pakistanis and or a combination of continuing the use of drones and attacks from the air with pressure from from the Pakistanis and perhaps even getting the Iranians to also uh, collaborate uh, and side with the Americans in this fight because the Iranians and the Taliban also are not uh, the most natural of allies. And just a little anecdote. In 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, uh, the U.S. started bombing Afghanistan, I believe, in October or November of that year. Uh, The U.S. had no intelligence on Afghanistan. They didn't know where to bomb, what to bomb, and so it was the Iranians who gave targeting um, um, information to the United States. And without the Iranians, the U.S. wouldn't know what, what to do in, in Afghanistan. So it's a, and, and, and the targeting information, by the way, was given to the United States at the United Nations in New York. Uh, there's a wonderful documentary by, done by the BBC on U.S.-Iranian relations, uh, some three-hour documentary in, in which this is all detailed. And it's really, really an excellent documentary. Yes. Uh, yes, ma'am. I'm just wondering, um, you know, I was also interested in the Saudi cooptation program, but I'm, it also makes me wonder, as a, as a, was it something the U.S. could engage in from a foreign policy perspective? In other words, would, would butternut guns, uh, the sort of argument that Nicholas Kostovsky is making, in the schools in uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, you know, in other words, would, would an anti-aid program uh, work in a kind of, uh, in the same kind of way Legitimate. Yeah, I, 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 I suspect the latter is true. I mean, I think that anything America touches at the moment, I mean, especially given the history of what's happened since 9-11, right? So you can't discount that. Um, the, the, the fact that the United States invaded a Muslim country. Right and and from a from a Saudi and Salafi point of view, brought to power a Shiite government, which by the way then confirms the whole conspiratorial worldview, which is that the Shiites who are the enemies of true Islam from the Salafi perspective, have colluded with the United States to further destroy Islam. Right, so Iraq is just a manifestation of that of the truth of that conspiracy. So so America, I think, um, is tainted, and anything it touches is. 
delegitimized, and which is the which is why it's it's a real problem. I mean, anyone you support anywhere in the Muslim world um, is automatically um, suspect. So I, I I don't think that direct aid is the way to go. And again, I don't know if there are easy answers to that question. I, I'm not sure building schools or sending um, Fulbrights or sending um, other kinds of um, people out there is, is is going to help. Yes, sir. I'm, uh, I'd like to uh, <clears throat> ask your views about the, I guess you might call it sort of the global penumbra of support for uh, at least some al-Qaeda positions among global Muslims. Obviously, the uh, Muslim diaspora in Europe is one of the major targets of their uh, propaganda. And <clears throat> after episodes like, say, the London bus bombing or things like that, uh, there was a good bit of talk in the press about things like Hizbut Tahrir in the, um, uh, in Britain or in Europe, and they would they, their responsiveness to the uh, Al Qaeda. I guess you could call it their maximum problem of restoring the uh, Muslim caliphate and the uh, conferences where you know. Indo-Pakistani Muslims in Britain would show up and say, oh yes, I thought this was a wonderful idea, and you know, what's the significance of this? Uh, from your perspective, somebody with, with deep expertise about Al-Qaeda, what can you say about things like this? Uh, so how far out does this reach? How seriously should it be taken? Uh, apparently, some of the uh, international reactions that the US or, or French authorities, for example, uh, to judge from some of this press analysis, we've been a lot less patient for these, these exercises of freedom of speech than the British were, for example. Uh, and then the British ended up having these very violent episodes. But you, what, what's your opinion or your take about this sort of wider region of this and, uh, among Muslim communities around the world? Um, so, so, you know, going back to that division that I made between, you know, the the aspect of the movement's uh, ideology that talks about what's wrong with the world, you know that that has very broad appeal. And and uh, you know at, at at my university, I once uh, showed uh, Bin Laden one of Bin Laden's tapes, uh, in which he talks about you know environmentalism and he talks against multinational corporations and you know he ha- he's adopted a whole set of uh, a worldview that is not just Salafi, right? And one of my students said, you know, if you just removed all this kind of reference to Islam and the Quran and so on, actually, a lot of what he says is quite appealing. Um, so, and and uh, and this is not a Muslim. I mean, this is a, an American, uh, you, you know, um, uh, Christian woman. And um, so, so it's very difficult to know uh, how that appeal then translates into someone becoming tactically involved in the movement. And uh, Hizb al-Tahrir and Jamaat Tabligh and other movements have been what called conveyor belts to, um, to Al-Qaeda. But, you know, in, in that sense, every mosque is potentially a conveyor belt to Al-Qaeda. And because the numbers of people who are ultimately conveyed there is so small, I believe it's very difficult to actually make a generalization uh, about what it is that gets people to ultimately take that last step to violence. 
um, often it it's uh, often it involves going to Pakistan, being trained by them, being recruited by them. Uh, so, so it's not just enough to listen to them or to uh, go on their websites to to really be converted to their to their view. I mean, the lone wolf phenomenon that is talked about is really so small that very difficult to make any again any generalizations. Uh, the the French tactic is you know they have a very particular judiciary police kind of uh, uh, um, uh, configuration where the judge the prosecuting judge also has po- police. Uh, uh, um, investigative and doesn't need a search warrant and that sort of thing. And and the lead in that effort is a man called uh, Jean-Louis Bruguière, I think, the French guy. And he praises, you know, his tactics because he says that that's the way to kind of deal with them um, rather than the British uh, or Anglo-American tradition uh, with Miranda and habeas and all kinds of other rights. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it'll only take one attack in France to prove him wrong, by the way. Right? Yes, sir. Um, I'm trying to figure out what you think managing would look like. It sounded from some of your answers earlier that, um, for instance, we're poisoned, we're the third rail. So whether we are doing direct humanitarian aid or military intervention, (coughs) the United States is now. I can easily imagine other Western European countries are out as, as interveners. So who's, who do you think is the kind of prime responsibility, who has the prime responsibility for managing? And is this some kind of containment strategy where you appeal to those who aren't so poisonous, perhaps the Chinese, perhaps the Russian? Or, or what is it to manage this? And who's got the responsibility? Well, I think the, the principle of responsibility is for other Muslims. I mean, the Muslims and Sunni Muslims have their own mechanisms for getting rid of their radicals, their extremists. I mean, they've al- these mechanisms are historically rooted. They've, you know, they date many centuries. And normally, if the Muslim world feels confident, doesn't feel that it's under attack, those mechanisms operate very well, and they ex- they they are able to crush and destroy their ra- their extremists. These mechanisms have stopped functioning properly for a variety of reasons that have nothing to do with America, by the way. I mean, they have to do with, you know, the destruction of traditional uh, authority structures and institutions, the nature of knowledge, mass education, all kinds of very complicated and big kind of sociological phenomena that have nothing to do with the West. But the, 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 the responsibility is first and foremost on other Muslims. And what the West can do is to provide, or at least not to provide, arguments for Al-Qaeda to tell these other Muslims, see, I told you so, right? So if, for instance, the West were uh, calling for or trying to imagine more accountable government, uh, less corruption in that that part of the world, um, that could help the moderate Muslims, and I don't like the label, but help the Muslims who are against Al-Qaeda argue that, well, it's not true what you're saying. Because ultimately, it is about uh, truth claims and about an ideology that claims to uh, to be bolstered by a reality that is proving it, it, its claims. Iraq and the invasion of Iraq was just this perfect um, um, event for Al-Qaeda because it just proved true what it was saying. And giving Al-Qaeda a gift like that is you know, the height of idiocy, frankly. Yes, sir. Actually, I think we would have confirmed your frame. Yeah. 
because uh, are we a paper tiger? They won't fight back. They won't defend themselves. Added on in Afghanistan, they uh, you know, you do go in and see they're aggressive, they're imperialist. Uh, I don't buy that argument. For a minute. Uh, I think that so you the problem are. Is that we're going to we're going to reinforce their brand, no matter what. Right. But what about their enemies? Right. You're not necessarily reinforcing that. You're not silenced. See, the thing is, they have enemies within the Muslim world. And the point is not to give their enemies, or not to give them weapons to use against their enemies, but rather to help their enemies fight them. Right. So by invading Muslim territory, you're confirming Al Qaeda's view of the world. No, that we're out to control. Yeah, that's true. That's so also true. I don't think you can base foreign policy on that alone. You have to have other considerations. But I think you're right that we have to be able to give the moderates so called moderates some ammunition. But it's very difficult to figure out exactly what that is. You know, how would we reinforce them? Maybe just leaving the area completely? That that's not that doesn't even make sense. We could afford that. Because we want to, why couldn't we afford to do that? Sorry, can you follow oil through? Oil. Right. So, so we want to control this resource. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, they contain they contain the world's oil. Controlling is our business, right? Right. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Yes, uh, about uh, now I will go to the uh, question that I have is about uh, Islamic jurisprudence. Uh, Wahhabis or Salafi movement is one of the offshoots of the Hanbali school as opposed to the schools. Correct. Now, in the other Sunni schools, Shafi'i and Hanafi, for example, in addition to Quran and Ahadis, the Sunnah, the the Ijma'ul ulama is a very important source. Yes. Yas is very important source. Correct. Salafis are rejecting these. So for that reason, the Wahhabis were notoriously unpopular in Pakistan, and Turkey, and Afghanistan, and other places. Then happened the Saudi money and other of the 18 Mujahideen groups in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. Only one led by Abdul Rasul Sayyaf, yes. you know that, was, was somehow was associated with the Wahhabism. Yeah, before him, Jamil Rahman. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for that reason, it's a Wahhabism, uh, that Salafism, whatever, if you will, it, it's very unpopular for, for that reason. But somehow their monies from Saudi Arabia have now increased <coughs> that in some sort of foothold in these other countries. There are internal sources that which could be empowered which can fight against that sort of movement. Yeah. That's what exactly uh, could be one of the one of the policy yeah. uh, uh, papers that someone can do, uh, some sort of initiation. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm actually studying the area of the Chechnya and the Chechen conflict in relation to the suicide bombings and hostage taking scenarios in Russia. Um, every time I come off on an article, it, I hear about
Right, so they shared the same theology. The Salafis and the Wahhabis share the same theology. The, the difference between them is this, that basically um, the, the, the founder of Wahhabism, I mean the, the instigator of Wahhabism, uh, and that's not a term that they use for themselves, by the way, is a man who died in 1792. His name was Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. He lived in, Saudi, in what, was, what is now Saudi Arabia, what was then Najd. And he was a reformer. And he was the instigator of the first Saudi state, the unification of Saudi Arabia under the, under the banner of this particular form of Islam. Um, and um, so his writings are extremely important to the Wahhabis. Other Salafis defer to his writings, but they're not as important for them. Um, Wahhabis also tend to be more uh, Hanbali in law. So they tend, to be, be, uh, they tend to adhere to their own school of law, whereas Salafis tend to be in law um, more eclectic. They're willing to take from other opinions and develop their own opinions. So they're less traditional in that sense. So the differences are, are minor, but they're not significant to my mind. And then Wahhabis typically also defer to the Saudi royal family, and Salafis don't necessarily. Um, you know, this whole thing about lesser and, uh, and greater jihad, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a canard, actually. Um, jihad means armed struggle. And, and Muhammad Abdul Wahab was very much in, in, into armed struggle and into fighting. I mean, when he said jihad, he meant fighting. And he fought other Muslims. And he engaged in the practice of excommunicating other Muslims. So I, I, that's not, you know, that, that's not my reading of his, of his writings or of his life or how he waged war against... Uh, other Muslims, including the Ottomans. So, th- th- this this thing about greater and lesser jihad is is, is um, it, you know it's not not a way to understand the Wahhabis. I mean, they're really into jihad as as traditionally understood. They just happen to shut down when their leader tells them to shut down. They shut down. They're not pacifists or anything. I think we're done. Thank you again. Then, uh, join me. Thank you.